exact wrong things that happen or exactly what people are looking for when it comes to best advice from people who have been there, done that uh, from a best practices standpoint. So we are now officially live. We have just gotten a taste of the founder story where our guest today, Mark Smith, was in a desert with various amount of stones as the world was crumbling. And now he's standing, sitting here before us, uh, leveraging technology to decentralize what at the time people thought centralization and more regulation could fix. And I would say as a classic example of a scale up, you really went from startup to scramble up to scale up. And it sounds as though you are continuing to scale. So here on the Scale Up Academy, uh, the Scale Up Heroes, which is essentially a brainchild of the scaleupacademy.io where we help to look at what is working with these scale up companies. We're gonna pick your brain, we're gonna go back to the desert, and then we're gonna find the meadows and pastures in which you are now uh, cultivating all of this money in a world where we need more regulation by deregulation. Uh, it's gonna get confusing <laughs> and exciting. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm excited to welcome you, Mr. Mark Smith, to the show. And to pronounce the name, it's Symbiont? It's Symbiont. Symbiont. You can say Symbiont or Symbiont. Those are both acceptable pronunciations. But think about symbiosis. So the okay. name is all about symbiosis, which is our DNA at Symbiont. We are the symbiotic relationship between a very deep and rich understanding and experience in traditional financial markets from a regulatory standpoint, market structure, and, and technology basis, coupled with this new, very exciting technology that we call blockchain and smart contracts. And from, from the very beginning, we believed that it was essential to have both of those aspects inside a company in order to succeed and, and achieve our goal, which is to make blockchain and smart contract technology the ubi ubiquitous infrastructure of the market as we go forward. Interesting. Well, the connective glue that is the blockchain of this show is going to happen between you, myself, and Mr. Mike. So, Mike, I want you to start with your fury of questions to see if we can <laughs> dig out all the sand and dust storm and we can help other people avoid whatever desert they're walking in or help people understand that when they trip and fall, it is only an opportunity to get up and scale up. Mike, take it away. Thanks, Ryan. And thank you, Mark, for, for joining and uh, sharing your experience with, with us. Uh, first of all, congratulations for the recent uh, Series B, uh, 20 million um, Series B. So let's start with um, a little bit of your career that you were um, sharing behind the scenes. So uh, what have you been doing before starting up? So first of all, I want to really thank both of you, Mike and Ryan, for inviting me. This is a really exciting opportunity to share with other entrepreneurs my experience. I'm very passionate about that. You, you might see that in my background a little bit. Um, this is my sixth fintech startup. Um, so I am a habitual, serial, whatever you want to call it, entrepreneur. Uh, that happened at some point in my life. I can't quite say when, um, but one day I woke up and realized I can never work for someone else again. Um, and I really want to solve hard problems. So uh, if you go back to the beginning, I swam for the U.S. national team and, and, and swam in college. And it taught me about competition and hard work and all these things. And um, a lot of athletes get recruited out of, out of college to go work in the financial markets. I did. 
Um, I ended up going to work for Raymond James Financial in St. Petersburg, Florida, and working with the investment banking group and started to spend time with entrepreneurs. And in college, I didn't know what entrepreneur was. I, I, I didn't know what that meant to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know the difference between that and someone who just showed up for work every day. Um, and so when I started to meet these entrepreneurs and perform the banking function, I realized I was way more interested in their story than I was in creating a spreadsheet or running a book. And I would typically not do my job the way I was supposed to because I was more interested in getting the next 20 minutes with that founder to tell me how he did it and why or how she did it and why. Um, so that really kind of taught me early on that taking risks were, was okay, um, that that's really how the world worked. And you know, big companies that people work for at some point were a startup somewhere in time um, and have grown and scaled up to these massive opportunities and massive organizations. So after a couple of years in that business, I realized, hey, I wanna take my own shot. I wanna be my own entrepreneur. And um, for those of you who are watching, you might not even remember, way back in the early 90s, people used to trade with each other face-to-face -face in financial markets, believe it or not. Um, they used to go to a location, show up and yell at each other and make signs and trade. So my first uh, experience as an entrepreneur was founding a day trading company. And this was back when day trading wasn't online because there was no such thing as online. We were just starting to get email um, back in 93, 94. Um, and day trading was about showing up again at a physical location and leasing a seat from a regulated broker dealer and sitting there in front of a terminal and trading. We operated the brokerage firm. We licensed the technology that we supplied to our, our customers. And as we started to scale and think about how do we go from the 50 day traders we service to 500 and from 500 to 5,000, physical issues uh, exist back then for scale, um, but also costs involved. And we started to be very particular about where are we spending this money and what's the risk reward for the money we're spending. And every month, our biggest ticket was the software, the terminal that someone was sitting at because we were paying a license fee. Mm -hmm. And... My partners and I started to realize, wait a minute, we're paying most of our hard-earned money to these guys who are taking no risk, that are far away from where we are, who have built this software that they can just stamp out whenever they want at these high margins and charge us whatever they want to charge us. Why shouldn't we just build our own? So with the hubris of a very young entrepreneur that doesn't know what it means to ever build anything with no background in technology at all, we went out and hired a couple developers and we put them in front of the terminals and we said, can you build something like this? We don't know how you do it. We don't know. We can't tell you anything other than this is what we want. <laughs> and so they started to build it. And that was really the beginning of let's do some things that are disruptive. That was the first sort of effort in my career to say, let's do something disruptive because we knew at the end, the effect of having our own software meant that not only could we service our own clients, but we could start selling it external from our walls to other day trading shops at a better price point and potentially scale a business in a new way that we never had anticipated before. So that's how it all got started. Um, we were very fortunate, as you have to be as an entrepreneur, that at that time, there was a huge problem going on in, in the financial markets, which was collusion, collusion of, of people who were trading. And very similar to how people view blockchain and smart contract technology or cryptocurrencies, there were these new outsiders called day traders. And these outsiders who weren't traditional guys from Wall Street building new systems and pushing the envelope on what you can do with technology and building systems that were better than the ones that were running the core capital markets um, that were 
being provided by huge banks and, and huge clearinghouses. And so you had this outsider mentality shaping this new technology that eventually would become the ubiquitous front-end trading technology of, of all financial markets. And so the SEC and their wisdom saw that they have a huge problem with collusion. And they have another problem with these outsiders with technology, that technology mm-hmm. is starting to violate some of the rules and regulations because technology can do it better than humans. And they had to decide, are we going to enforce regulation against these outsiders? Mm -hmm. Or can we take what they've built and have two problems make one solution, apply the technology to the collusion problem and allow for electronic matching of of transactions? And that was the seminal moment in the change of how markets work today, which is we call it the electronification of Wall Street. That simple idea that I I can match a buyer and a seller electronically instead of with a human. Um, and so when matching engines were approved from a regulatory perspective, they issued ECN licenses, which people probably don't even remember. And you had this special license that said, we're not going to enforce the Exchange Act against you, ECN operator, because you're going to solve our problem of collusion. And so therefore, you're off the hook for all your bad deeds when you were acting as an illegal exchange before. And now you're going to be part of the market system structure. And we were one of the first, the company that I was a founder of, Nextrade, was one of the first ECNs approved by the SEC. Um, and so from there, we all sort of know the story of what happened with that, right? We went from matching technology to straight through processing to algorithmic trading to now high frequency trading to dark pools to crossing networks to all these things, none of them of which could have happened without that genesis moment of matching a buyer and seller electronically. So that's, that's the genesis story of the first startup. Amazing. And uh, I think that we can do an entire episode just about your <laughs> five, uh, startups. And let's now jump from the first one uh, to your last one, which is Symbiont. So uh, what, what was in the origin of Symbiont and what Symbiont does uh, today and what is your value proposition and differentiation out in the market? Yeah, I'm going to take a little liberty and I'm going to, I'm going to share a little bit of the end story of the last two startups to so you understand why Symbiont was, was started. So Got it. I was very fortunate to be a partner in Lava Trading, um, which was acquired by Citigroup in 2004. Um, and as a founder, um, for those of you founders out there that are watching, when you get acquired by a large institution, they say, you are the important people in that organization and you must work here for a certain amount of time to ensure a great transition. So I had to spend two years working at Citi um, in their uh, electronic trading environment. And what I learned was, is that very large banks um, are laden with legacy problems, huge legacy problems from a technology standpoint and a structure standpoint, um, the bureaucracy involved, the layering of that, and then the way in which regulation is dealt with and the, and the cost of around compliance. Um, extremely difficult to really do anything, uh, evoke any real change or disruption. So the day that I was finished my contract with City, I left. And I went back with my old partners from my first startup, which I just described, and said, hey, guys, I think we can do better. We can build a better bank. So with the hubris of an entrepreneur, <laughs> we decided, well, let's start a bank. Can't, can't be that hard, can it? Um, so we began to, to, to start a bank. And our thesis was we want to raise money from individual investors, lawyers, doctors, CPAs that are good payers who will use the bank 
and that will build all the technology natively to the bank so that we don't have any legacy problems. And then we will look to find innovative ways to be an e-structure, no branch offices or one you have to have from a regulatory perspective. Everything done online, all those really fun things, You know, even thinking about mobile back in 2006, 2007. We finally raised all the money. We got our license. We were really excited. Here we go, a de novo bank, brand new. Here we're going to disrupt the world. We opened the doors in November of 2007. And pretty much everybody knows that was when the sky started to fall. <laughs> and we started to enter into what we all know now as the big financial crisis. And immediately the regulators were in our office um, and they were making us participate in TARP. We had one loan on the books. Very strange. We don't have any toxic assets that we're taking massive amount of taxpayer money on our balance sheet unnecessarily. And then Dodd-Frank came out. And when Dodd-Frank came out, the regulators came back to our office and said, remember the license we granted you where you could be an e-bank? We're rescinding that. You have to go make 10 new branch offices in your local area. And remember the, the, the provision we gave you that you could build these alternative trading systems inside your bank? No, you have to be a bank. You can only be a bank. You are now a lender. Uh, you're not a software company. You're not a financial services company. That broker dealer you own, you got to sell it. That clearinghouse you're trying to buy, you can no longer buy it. You go be a bank because that's how we're going to solve things. If we all remember, right? Wall Street to Main Street, right? Wall Street to Main Street. So here we are in Main Street. So that was the moment where I realized and I looked at the regulation and we saw what Dodd-Frank was trying to accomplish. And in no way did it contemplate a real market structure solution. It simply went from too big to fail to let's make it even bigger to fail and let's double down on centralization. Let's double down on central counterparties because they can then have more transparency, which we all know isn't true. Let's double down on risk. So we push all the risk in one location. Um, I personally said that won't work. So I stepped away from the board of the bank, stepped away from the bank, and I said, I'm going to find a technology in which provides for the ability for natural peer-to-peer -peer markets, over-the-counter markets, to exist in their native state, very much like Adam Smith saw back in Wealth of Nations, and provide a technology that can enforce those rules without having to have the untrustworthy middleman that we used to believe was the trusted middleman that would solve these problems of distribution. So I went out and started to look for technology. And the first thing I found, believe it or not, was Ripple. Most people don't realize that Ripple predates Bitcoin. Um, it was a sort of white paper idea by a guy named Ryan Fugger up in Canada. He had done a small implementation, and it was really around social IOUs and the ability to net them down inside a network so you don't have to move payments. And if you don't have to move payments, then you don't have to have a bank. That was, that was the initial idea. It's very different today, but that was the initial idea. And I went up there and met him and... Went through the whole process and said, wow, that's interesting, but this isn't a hook for the show, by the way, but that won't scale. That will never scale beyond <laughs> small communities and small people that know each other. You need something that allows for untrusting people to, to participate. And I continued to look, and then a very smart friend of mine sent me the Bitcoin white paper uh, in 2010 and said, hey, I think this is what you're looking for. First of all, I tried to read it. <laughs> couldn't get through it all. The math was beyond me. Second of all, I come from a very deep foreign exchange background. And I thought, these are a bunch of people that don't understand markets, right? This can't be a currency. And it looks like it's a computer scientist kind of playing around with some interesting technology. And that will never work. And I told people, that's never going to work. <laughs> and I went away. I continued to look and continued to look and, and, and did some consulting. Uh, I met with some people that had some pretty interesting projects. And I helped them along um, to keep that sort of 
your brain firing in the right way and to keep you in that game of, of understanding the grind of a startup. Because if you leave that, that muscle can atrophy. So being a consultant helped me keep that muscle strong without having my own risk capital um, out there at the time. So it was powering that muscle without having to necessarily spend my capital to do it. Uh, and, then, and then someone brought Bitcoin back to me again in, in 2012 and said, Bitcoin, you got to pay attention. And by then it was trading at, I don't know, 13 bucks or something. <laughs> and it was the network was going. And so then I went and called some, some really strong mathematicians that have worked for me in the past and said, explain why this is so interesting. Explain. It. I don't understand it. And they explained the two generals proof problem. And immediately when I understood double spend and two generals proof, ah, this is the technology where you don't need an intermediary where we can do something truly peer-to-peer. -peer. It won't be Bitcoin for my purposes, which were let's fix traditional financial markets, but the, it's the inspiration to build something that suits capital markets that is a blockchain. And hence, um, Symbiont was then born. Well done. And, um, and what, what is the ad count at this stage uh, that you have at Symbiont and uh, what, what metrics can you share? So we doubled our staff size or our team size in 17, doubled it again in 18, and we're now proudly 63 team members. Um, mm -hmm. We have uh, grown at, at a very healthy pace, spe specifically in our ecosystem. We've taken a different strategy in the way we hire and bring on team members because We're not trying to build the next Bitcoin blockchain or the next cryptocurrency or the next Ethereum. We're trying to build something that services capital markets. And so we decided to hire experts in the independent disciplines that make up a blockchain. So distributed systems engineers, um, theoretical math mathematicians, theoretical cryptographers, applied cryptographers, elliptic curve mathematicians, full stack engineers. Um, so we focused on the best of breed in each of those categories. Um, for language designers to assemble a purposeful and novel blockchain smart contract solution that specifically goes after problems in capital markets. And so if you look at the makeup of our team, we actually don't even have one salesperson working at Symbian. I'm, I'm sort of the only salesperson. Where 85% of the team are engineers or part of the team in which um, is focused on delivering the product. So we have a very strong culture towards engineering, a very strong culture towards solving hard problems. And we're solving for distribution through creating very large partnerships. Got it. And by the way, this is a good point. So how did you structure your leadership team from the beginning uh, until now? So how many people do you have in the leadership team and in what positions or functions are they playing? We, we don't think in that, in that context. Um, so when I, when, I, when I first started to think about what would I do differently in the five previous startups if I ever started another one, because frankly, I thought I was done. I thought the bank was it and I was going to be finished. Um, and one of the things I, I said was, look, you can do things very differently. You don't need to be the so loose Silicon Valley approach where it's sort of like do whatever you want and hopefully you fall on something. And by the way, here's a bunch of free stuff along the way. And um, maybe we'll find a revenue model sometime um, or the very rigid, you know, traditional approach, which is, hey, here's a bureaucracy, the generals at, at the top, right, mm -hmm. borrowing from the military, which is how corporations started and have a very rigid bureaucracy. I thought, I thought there was something different. And coming from athletics, I thought, well, you know, an elite 
sports team, an elite Olymp- Olympic team or an elite military squad like the Navy SEALs, where each person has a role to play, which is highly important. And each of them leads in their own way. And you don't need necessarily a top down approach. And a lot of people give lip service to flat organizations. Um, we truly have a flat organization at Symbiote. We don't have titles. I'm legally the CEO. Um, we, we have a CTO um, so that the world knows who we are. But inside our four walls, we all have roles to play. And the way we look at leadership is based on what we call the play we're running. So today on this interview, I'm in the lead and, and Ben Spiegelman, who you guys spoke to before, was in, some, in support. But tomorrow, Ben may be running a, a sales presentation and I may be there in support of Ben to answer questions about something. And so depending on what we're doing and who's participating in that, our organizational chart changes in an organic way. Um, So we have leaders, all 65 of us are leaders. All 65 of us have the ability to manage up, to evoke change inside the organization, um, to take us leadership through example or through experience. Um, And we really have a very strong data-driven organization based on radical candor. So we all feel as though we're participating, we're loosely coupled, but highly aligned organization. Got it. So uh, is this something uh, kind of holocracy philosophy or this is not something that you are uh, considering in the way you structure your company at this stage? So the biggest influence for me from a philosophical standpoint mm-hmm. is objectivism. So Ayn Rand, if you're familiar with Ayn Rand, um, mm-hmm. big focus on rational thought, right? The objective mm-hmm. viewpoint, no subjectivity. We try to reject subjectivity here at all costs, right? Because what, what is a blockchain? What are cryptocurrencies all about? It's about math. We're trusting math instead of people. So that's about as objective as it gets, right? We know math is objective. It has an answer to every problem. <laughs> um, and so that was the biggest inspiration for me. Now, there are no Randian uh, philosophical views of how to organize a- an entity, um, but the big focus on the power of the individual. And for me, Being around financial markets, I've also seen different models. Um, And one of the models in which I point at and say, that is just historically a bad model, is a consortium. And if you juxtapose a consortium to the power of the individual, I think you can clearly see, I don't know of a time ever where a consortium created innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But you can list forever all the individuals who created massive innovations and breakthroughs. Um, so we, we believe in the power of the individual. And if everyone does their job, if everyone executes their role perfectly, the team will be wildly successful. And that's the philosophy we base ourselves on. That, that's a very uh, interesting point. And uh, I was thinking that when you sit down to define the priorities, so it's, the priorities are defined around missions that you have to accomplish, projects that you have to accomplish, right? So what is the main BAG of the company or the big area of issues goal or the long-term vision uh, for the company? So uh, what are you dreaming of when you wake up every day? So what are you trying to achieve? So I'm dreaming every day that two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, just the way that I can look back at matching and say, Matching technology, you can't imagine a time in which people actually stood on the New York Stock Exchange floor and traded with one another. You just can't imagine it. And if you speak to people, younger millennials, 
they of course can't imagine it because they've never even seen it. So mm -hmm. I'm looking for the time where, where, where blockchain technology, specifically Symbian's platform in, in many cases, is that invisible ubiquitous infrastructure that just works underneath capital markets and provides for truly efficient, truly fair and orderly markets in which we're empowering the participants beyond intermediaries and rent takers. And when people can't imagine a time in which I had to go through a third party to do a transaction with someone else, when you, whatever the next generation is, when they don't even know, right, um, that, that this exists, that is what I'm imagining. That's what I'm dreaming about. And that's when people don't talk about blockchain as a thing anymore, then I know we've won. Got it. Um, so uh, how do you sit down and you start kind of cascading this BAG down and defining the priorities? So what, what is the process of defining your own priorities as a team? And typically, who sits down on, on those meetings? We have a very strong thesis about the way we use the technology and then the way we interact with domain experts. We don't think we should be building something and hoping someone will use it. We truly and deeply believe that domain experts who wake up every day and, and do something, let's say like Vanguard, who's a big partner of ours, they wake up every day and think about how can they manage money in the most efficient way possible? How, and how do I empower the end investor to get these, these investments in the best possible way so they can maximize their returns? So we engage with Vanguard and talk about what are what is the problem that you're seeing here in this particular market or in that particular market. And they can describe that, that problem in intimate detail. We are a enabler and empower a problem solver for them. So as their partner, we capture that information and then we feed back to them, here's how we can solve this with blockchain and smart contract technology. Or we may feed back to them wrong technology because we do that a lot. We say, look, this problem is better solved with a central high-performance database, not a blockchain. But this one is, is much better solved with, with a blockchain. So we work with our domain experts to understand the problems and then determine if those problems are solvable in a way that we think is the best possible way with a blockchain and smart contracts. And then from there, we begin to capture those requirements of, okay, how do we, how do we solve for this, this problem first? And then this problem and that problem to eventually change the whole marketplace in which these operate. And we break them out into teams who focus on different areas and can then solve those problems. And all the solutions from each of those projects comes from one platform. So we have one singular blockchain and smart contract platform that can be serviced to solve for many different types of problems, which allow us to more rapidly iterate and more rapidly scale because we're not reinventing the platform every time. We're actually just creating a new smart contract that solves that particular problem. So could you call that a problem-based prioritization? Yes, I think you, you could call it that. Um, we, as all startups, when you want to get to the nitty gritty about prioritization, money drives prioritization, right? We are here for one purpose. A lot of other things are going to happen along the way, but we're here for one purpose, and that is to increase our shareholder wealth, the value of our, of our entity for our team first and our investors second. Um, and so we will prioritize around where we see revenue opportunities, but we don't chase revenue where it's an inappropriate use of the technology. So you have to first say, oh, here's all the right uses of the technology. Here are problems we can solve. 
And then you can order them in, okay, if we have to have a linear scale, who comes first, who comes second, who comes third, then, then the way in which we believe we can drive revenue will determine the, those factors. Interesting. And quick, quick follow-up question to when, you know, I, I believe that you can have the best idea in the world, but if you can't explain it properly, it's no longer the best idea. You can have the best technology, you can have the best everything. So when it comes to a, uh, well, I guess I wasn't moving enough. The lights went off. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't so excited you to... enough, Ryan. You're not excited enough yet. So I got I know. Mario. <laughs> I found myself stuck. I was listening. I was like, oh. <laughs> All I hear is problem, problem, problems. I'm like tuned in. But when you're describing what you do to investors, to people in the marketplace, to potential partners, I'm always curious uh, about how you position the problem as part of that communication. I argue that nobody cares what you do. They actually care more about the problems that you solve. And you seem to be very much on the same page. So when it comes to blockchain and technologies and things that people might not necessarily get, uh, when you're describing what you do, I'm curious the proportion between explaining your solution or focusing on the problem. Because uh, you could go either way, but when you're explaining to people outside of the company or investors, to, they might just hear blockchain and it just sort of it all mumbled together. How do you focus on explaining what you do? Do you focus on what you do or do you focus on the problem that you solve when trying to communicate it? Now we very much focus on the problem we're trying to solve. And the, 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 the real panacea would be, I don't even have to tell you I solved it with a blockchain, right? It was, here is your problem, right? I've now solved it for you. You've got to the end state great, right? Yeah, you don't care what it is. Right? It just happened to be a blockchain that got you there, right? And a smart contract that got you there, but we wanted to get you there in the best way. And, and that's the, and the right way to go. So we are very problem focused. I think one of the biggest problems that the whole ecosystem, and, and I'm certainly um, guilty of this for sure, early on was getting into the complexity. This is highly complex technology. And um, it, it is additional complexity of separating the technology from cryptocurrency. So not only do you have to explain how the technology works, you have to explain how it's different than something that people don't necessarily want to be involved in, right? When you're dealing with large financial institutions, as much as I'm a believer in Bitcoin, I shouldn't have to convince someone at Vanguard or Citi or NASDAQ right, about Bitcoin. What I should be able to do is convince them that we're problem solvers with a great technology that's designed for capital markets. Um, and so everyone in our ecosystem pretty much was guilty of getting into so deep detail of how this works and how this does this and how the cryptography works and all these kind of things. And you get lost on, okay, well now you've explained this very sophisticated mechanism. How does that work on the problem again? <laughs> so over time, the combination of the hype cycle, which we've gone through where a lot of people learned about blockchain technology um, and our maturity as a company, um, building the technology and then pulling it into production and really seeing how it's used, we've been able to modify the way in which we communicate um, to the more, the less technologically sophisticated companies and message in a way in which we have to do very little um, detailed conversations about the increase of the technology and talk at a high level. So we talk about, can you originate an instrument? Can it exist natively here without it having to be somewhere else? Can you automate that thing? And if you automate it, does the automation solve your problem? Or 
does a restriction of behavior solve your problem? So are we thinking about automating things or restricting things or a combination of the two? And you get those answers. And at the end, you sort of, it's like baking a cake, right? You get all the ingredients and then you say, oh, ta-da, here's your cake. It just happens to be these three smart contracts and this configuration of a blockchain network with these people running nodes gets you to where you want to go. Um, and if you can avoid getting in the intricacies of technology, I would recommend anyone do that as quickly as possible. I think that's one, one of the great challenges of any company, which is very intense uh, in technology and IP. And it seems that in, in this case, uh, it's clear that that's your case, that it's difficult to kind of align what are the business goals, uh, as you said in the beginning, with what needs to be developed. So it's very tempting to start developing and building the most complex things in the market instead of serving the clients and making money, as you said, as a source of uh, prioritization. How do, you fall, how do you find this balance with your team? Because I believe that having so much, so many intelligent people in the company that want to be challenged and want to work in exciting and difficult problems, this is really difficult then to drive them in the direction of monetization. Well, the good news is, is that we had a, a good amount of runway to be able to spend time thinking about these hard problems, solving them generically at the beginning inside our four walls. So the, the base things, how do you provide for privacy? How do you provide for confidentiality? How do you provide for scale? You don't need to necessarily know a specific problem to know that you need to make things private, that you need to be able to um, grow this and store data and other things like that. So um, we very early on sold our team members, new team members on the hard problems. We said, look, come here. We're solving some really hard problems. We're inventing things that don't exist today. Um, and But in the background, the, the, the financial market side of the symbiosis of Symbian that we talked about before, right, these two pieces, that was driving it. So we, I knew personally with my experience and others on our team, we already knew how markets worked. We, we were in-depth in those markets previously. We knew where some problems were. But from a general standpoint, we, need, we knew that the high-level things, compliance, scalability, confidentiality, privacy, fintech best practices, you know, all these things were important core pieces of the technology stack. So we were able to bring in some amazingly smart people who, when, when you ask them, why did you choose Symbian? The first answer is, oh, I want to solve these hard problems. They got some great, we've got some great problems to solve. And then you have to understand in the, in the timeline of the, of, of the evolution of your organization, there's a period in which you start to come out of R&D and you start to move towards operations. And it's that, at that inflection point when you have to then find, okay, what's going to drive this very, um, very fragile state of the company at this particular transition point. And for us, it was domain experts as partners. So solidifying uh, our relationship um, early on, evoking um, changes with the law in the state of Delaware, landing Vanguard as a big client, focusing on those needs, and then leveraging that relationship with, with their near-term service providers, and slowly moving out. I think there's a lot of talk about how fast can you go. Well, velocity is irrelevant if you don't have a roadmap, right? You can drive your car as fast as you want to go, but if you don't know where you're going, it, it doesn't matter how fast you're going. So, you know, we, we, we chose velocity and R&D 
And then we chose determinism around problem solving as we emerge from R&D into deployment. And you really have to change the mindset. And, and, and you do get a, a shift in, in the thought process, but there's no shortage of hard problems to solve. And every new client comes with another hard problem. And uh, as long as the baseline architecture was correct from the beginning, then we can iterate around how do we modify things to be able to address these new problems. So um, but that transition also is a good determinant for people to realize we're here to make money. This is what we're here to do, right? We're, we're here to solve these problems. We're here to make money. And again, it's another, it's a hard problem in my ecosystem because a lot of people believe open source is table stakes. A lot of people believe in crypto economics and crypto economics can work in an open source fashion. I think it can, but it's not going to work in, in a, in a regulated financial market. Um, so in a regulated financial market, you have to find other ways to, to drive this. And for us, it was being very open and clear. We're an enterprise software company, um, no different than Oracle Enterprise Database, right? We're looking to, to, to sell these enterprise licenses to people to solve these problems, and we should be rewarded when we solve them with our partners. And so that combination of domain expertise and understanding and just the, 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 the brutal and clear reality that startups are here to drive value for investors and team members. And that's a mantra that we hear constantly inside our four walls. Get it. So uh, how do you envision that we can go from uh, 1 million to 100 million in, in revenues in this kind of business? Is via adding high-level enterprises and maybe having 10 or 20 clients uh, paying 10 million each or 5 million each, or is by having a lot of uh, micro clients. So how does it work in this industry? And uh, how do you think that you'll be able to really scale Symbiont uh, in, in, the next, in the upcoming years? So, so I learned a lesson very early on in my career that the hardest thing you can do in financial markets is create liquidity in a new marketplace. So you start from an idea, there's no buyers and sellers, you introduce this new service or this new product, and then you got to find buyers and sellers to drive that. That is, that is yeoman's work. That is a Herculean effort to get a market off the ground. It's very similar in a blockchain environment where you're looking for the network effect. So the question becomes, how do we get enough participants in a network to create a moat around that network to defend it and then start to get the value of a blockchain, which is a network effect? So we solved for that by saying, let's go out and get these very large lighthouse clients that themselves have a center of gravity. They attract other providers or service members or people in their markets already. So again, when you think about Vanguard, when you think about Louis Ranieri, who is the godfather of the 30-year mortgage and the inventor of, 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 of um, securitized mortgage-backed products, someone like that has a huge universe of, of participants and service providers that can join networks very quickly. So our model is to keep the pay gate as low as possible on the entry point and then participate in the ongoing transactions of the network itself. So it's not about thousands of micro clients and it's also not about four or five huge clients. It's about letting a, a network grow organically so that and, and decreasing that initial pay gate so that it's easy to say yes and join the network. And once you join the network and run a node, then the more of these instruments that we can create on that network natively and then they begin to go from origination to secondary market transactions or transfers amongst participants. So Symbiont then captures um, revenue from the license up front, 
We capture revenue from the origination of these instruments, and then we capture revenue for the secondary market movement. So every time something moves on the network, we capture some revenue. And so if you think about it, it's a leader lagger model. So the leader is license fees. And then when you get enough licenses, you get the network effect, then you start to originate. So then origination will become the higher revenue number. And then if you originate enough instruments, then the secondary market transactions will be even a higher number. So as you go forward and you're scaling, you don't have to sell to more institutions to drive exponential revenue growth. You just need them to use the platform more. And the more protected the network is, the more likely they are to use the platform. So it's this idea that you create this quote unquote liquidity with this network effect, and then you participate with the success of usage going forward. Got it. So until now, just doing a quick recap, we have discussed it, um, a little bit about your own org structure. So how do you organize your teams? Uh, what is your philosophy behind building a team? Uh, how do you define priorities? Uh, we also discussed a little bit execution is how do you align everyone around those priorities um, and uh, and now we were discussing how do we kind of build a business that gets to 100 million and what's your path in your case in your business um, model so coming back to the last pillar of the scaling up framework that people are already used to to listen to which is uh, cash so what is the way what is the path that you choose to kind of fund Uh, your company until you get to the point that you are able to become a giant or to exit the business uh, by IPO or acquisition. Uh, not sure uh, what you are thinking about, but I'm much more interested in uh, and from the audience perspective in understanding how do you fund your strategy? So how do you make your strategy happen? You, you talk a little bit about it, that you kind of raise it uh, um, an interesting amount of capital to give you the, the, the safety and to your team to develop the IP with enough time and patience uh, to wait for the time when this, this will really scale um, without getting to kind of compromise the long term with bad decisions in the short term because of cash urgency. So what, what is your in our mind and what are your main learnings uh, in the previous, uh, raising the previous funding round? So uh, first and foremost, I made a lot of mistakes in my earlier companies, um, <laughs> certainly when I got going, understanding what, where to spend money, where the appropriate places to spend money, when to spend in that, mon that money, um, timing-wise, and how quick to grow. Um, and so one of the greatest things about being an entrepreneur in 2019 is we have so many tools at our disposal that are free or approximate free or are very low in cost. Um, from an infrastructure standpoint. So we think about leverage all the time. Now people talk about efficiency, but efficiency is a byproduct of something. Um, it's a, and, and we look at it as a byproduct of leverage. And so how do we leverage ourselves as a, and, and tools in order to have sort of the lean startup ethos that we want to have? And so um, I'm very proud of the way in which we've been able to be great stewards of capital Prior to this $20 million investment round, we had only raised $16 million for five years of operations in Symbian. And I think if you think about that in the context of the rest of the blockchain ecosystem, where our competitors are raising hundreds of millions of dollars and ICOs were raising billions of dollars, um, 16 million before this round is pretty small for what we were able to accomplish. And we were able to do that because 
we focused on the smart way to spend the money, what was important, right? And so we talked about our engineering culture. So it's very important to build the team. And I think as you pointed out previously, you can have the greatest mousetrap in the world. You can have the greatest idea in the world. But if you don't have the right team to execute, you will fail. And if you have an average model and an average mousetrap, but a fantastic team, you can succeed. And so the, the benefit of, of being an, an enterprise solution is that we didn't need a massive amount of capital up front because we weren't trying to go get the masses of the retail where you just have to spend a lot of money fast to get a lot of eyeballs and accounts to come on to, to drive value. Um, we were able to, to, to say, okay, this is a long sales cycle and a long build cycle. We have a big dream. So we can, we can be cautious with our money early and invest in the people and only the people. So we, we spent five years in WeWork. I should be on a WeWork advertisement, frankly, because I was a single <laughs> member with a card all by myself in 2013, right? And then we went to two people in a bullpen, then three people in an office, then six, then 10, then 12. We ended up with 60 people in a WeWork office, which is huge for WeWork. Um, so we didn't spend any money um, unnecessarily on on office infrastructure. And a lot of first-time entrepreneurs think that's the most important thing to do, go get an expensive office to attract people. I, I tried that once. It doesn't work well. Um, don't worry about that yet. Worry about building your product, building your team, understanding and getting your, your thesis very clear and, and worry about revenue before you worry about making a big investment. So we can happily say we just moved into our new office, um, 10,000 square feet of our own, but it took us six years to get here, right? And, and, that, and that was six years well spent. We leverage AWS, Azure. We leverage all the cloud environments because that gives you massive amount of leverage and efficiency. And we use our partners and our investors to drive our strategy from a business side, which then allows us not to have boots on the ground to sales. So we, we early on had a strategic thesis that we were not going to take any investment dollars from any entity that might be caught in the innovator's dilemma. And I would say anyone starting a company, think about if you're trying to uproot incumbents, if you're trying to disrupt people. If you take money from those you're trying to disrupt, what is the likelihood that they're going to let you use that money to disrupt them? Probably pretty low. And so if you look at the blockchain ecosystem today, you can see very clearly who took money from banks and brokerage firms and exchanges early on in their cycle and what does their technology stack look like and who didn't. So everyone who took money from those entities when they had the spigots open and they would give you as much as you wanted have built things that aren't blockchains. They'll tell you openly these, you know, these are blockchain inspired. And if you look at the topology, there are central points around participants and those participants look like the banks, the brokerage firms, the exchanges who were running those particular centralized positions. Now they have authority inside a decentralized network. That's not a blockchain. That's not how it works. And they were caught in the innovator's dilemma. And so, so they, they took the trade-off. I'll take the money and I'll modify our architecture. At Symbiont, we said, no, we're not going to take any of that money at all. We're going to go for strategic dollars only from those who have been disruptors before, who have brought outsider technology into markets before and then have changed those markets. And so we, we raised those early kind of numbers, small in amounts uh, in our seed and our, our series A with those kind of strategic investors. And even with this round, this, this round we raised, we specifically said, it's not the money we, we're looking for as much as it is the partners. And so when you look at those investors with NASDAQ leading the round, with Citi participating and Galaxy Digital, those are strategic partners that we have commercial relationships with. So that money that we take in from them 
is levered up and scaled up um, to adding zeros to the left of the decimal point through the commercial relationships we can garner with those investors. Got it. So we are now short uh, in time and uh, I will jump to the last question, uh, which is if you would have the opportunity to meet you again in the beginning of Symbiont, uh, what would you say in a sentence to yourself? <laughs> no matter how much people tell you you're wrong, don't lose faith. Have awesome. the will to succeed. Excellent. Well, I've got uh, I've got my notes here on my very tiny notepad. Uh, <laughs> That's great. This, this is this is for today. And then this is everything that I learn as a result that I think about for the rest. You got to leave room for notes. But the one thing that I heard you say, which is really the foundation of your entire success and at the root of the problem that you solve is a better way to match transactions, a better way to match someone on one side with a financial traction on the other. And what I see is, is that streamline core to your ethos, core to your hiring, core to your innovation, core to your development. You're really focused on that right match. And so it all kept, it all kept coming down to that. I love the fact that when Mike asked you about your org, you literally said it's organic. Uh, <laughs> and so I have org. Well done, Ryan. Well done. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a crazy way to try to find the right match between employees and a company is is it's organic you literally have like left the space for them for them to walk in i love the fact that you are hiring people based on their desire to solve problems i love the fact that you are working with these larger companies being the resource for them to solve those problems and if you look at all of that there is so much symbiotic and symbiosis attainment because you're really just trying to, at the end of the day, find a match, a solution for that match of a problem. And what's inspiring is, is to not only hear your last piece of advice, but your enthusiasm for what you're doing. It, it just comes just screaming through the Zoom. And I think that uh, we often forget that, that that faith, that excitement, that uh, passion to solve problems is sometimes the biggest, the single, the most, the most guiding light. It is that, that lighthouse. So for everybody out there, um, replay this and just see how excited um, you know, Mark is about what he's doing. And at the end of the day, no offense, Mark, but I don't care what you do and nobody does. We only care about the problems that you're solving. And because you are attacking serious problems, you've got serious scale and uh, the way in which you are org organically bringing it together, um, tying it all in with, uh, with radical candor, it, you are just truly creating a symbiotic relationship between you, your employees, and your stakeholders. So um, it's all about the match, buddy. Uh, so keep doing that because you are solving real problems and uh, you don't have to have a big fancy office right out the gate. You just put the pieces in place and they will all fall together. Got that right. Just like it has today. This was a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate Thank the time. Thank you. And I'm going to have to send you guys some T-shirts because I think we're kind of symbiotic ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Thank for you. those of you who, who want to join in these type of conversations more often, check out scaleupacademy.io. Uh, we do our best to bring these superheroes in, get them to take off their capes and just be real with us. So I think this was a great example of a real opportunity. And I'm going to fill out the rest of this page with my learning lessons as I see them match with my life. So 
you guys enjoy the rest of the day. Everybody out there will see you around. And uh, that's it. Keep solving problems. Thanks, guys. Scale it up.